Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here at First Christian Church. I do want to remind you that tomorrow night, uh, Gunger will be with us. Gunger is a band that's made up of uh, Mike and Lisa Gunger. They're well-known across the country. Uh, we do some of their music around here, and uh, I'd invite you to come. We don't often do this kind of thing where we bring in an, an artist from outside because we get to have these great guys, or in the East Auditorium, we get to hear those great people there. Um, and you see so many different musicians moving across our stages. Uh, we're blessed with having all of that in the life of our church. But so when this opportunity to have Gunger come along um, came up, we said, well, let's do it, but uh, we need your support to make it happen. So if you'd like to um, visit with us tomorrow night, this, the concert starts at 6.30. There are very limited tickets available online at this point at firstdecatur.org slash gunger. I'd suggest today you could pick up tickets, though. We have some tickets that are available in the lobby without having to go online. So pick up a ticket, and we look forward to seeing you tomorrow night, all right? Let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team. And if you're a guest with us today, either here in the, in the West Auditorium and to those of you in the East Auditorium, we're very glad you're with us in both spaces. And I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 is where we're going to look in just a few minutes. Before we get there, I'd also like to um, suggest that um, you might start rummaging around in your pockets or perhaps in a purse uh, we, by, by the time we get to the end of our time together today, I'm going to want you to, if you can get a hold of a, 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 a penny, a nickel, a dime, and a quarter, okay? No, we're not going to take a second offering or anything like that. I just want, if you can find some coins like that, uh, get them out and we'll have, I'll be chatting about that later on. I think you'll find it interesting about some, some unique characteristics about U.S. coinage. I, while you're doing all of that... Uh, I just need to say right off the bat that what we're looking at today, it's a difficult passage of Scripture. And um, it'd be very easy for us to mishear what I'm saying and also to misread what Scripture is saying as well. One of the most difficult passages of Scripture that there is. And so we have to treat this with a lot of tenderness and sensitivity. And in doing so, I want to start, before we look at the scripture, I want to tell you a story that I think will give us some ways in which to manage what's in front of us. I want to tell you a story that would happen early in Jesus' uh, ministry career. It's found in John chapter 8, that's where it's recorded, and here's how the story goes. That Jesus was traveling around Galilee and the, uh, around the Sea of Galilee and in Judea, and was, his fame was becoming somewhat known. And the religious leaders of his day were quite concerned about him. They were known as Pharisees. And they didn't know if he was going to push Judaism in a wrong direction. They didn't know if he was a heretic. They didn't know if this populism that was rising up was going to create problems with the Roman Empire and everything. So one day, in an effort to try and figure out who he was and say, okay, is this guy for real? If he's for real, we'll know by the way when she answers. They brought a woman to him as a test. Now this lady, uh, we don't know much about her other than scripture says, the story says that she'd been caught in adultery. Now, within that culture and within that sort of faith profile, if a person was involved in adultery, particularly a woman, not always a man, there were situations in which men could have sex outside of marriage and it wasn't, so to speak, forbidden, which is another whole story. But in that culture, if a woman was caught in adultery, and a man as well, for them, I don't want to get into all the details, but what's interesting to me is that they brought the woman. They didn't bring the man. They brought the woman. Okay, so you would say, well, in, in our day and time, if we're going to have a situation where two people have had an affair, we're going to ask both the people what's going on. In this case, they only asked the lady. 
And they bring her, and it says she had been caught in adultery, and they say to Jesus, our culture, our practice is that we will stone this woman to death for her misbehavior. She's had an affair. What say you? And then scripture tells us, in John 8, it says that he kneels down and he reaches down into the dust. It doesn't say dirt or sand, it says dust. And he reaches into the dust and he writes something, and we have no idea what he writes. I wonder if I'm Jesus. Let me just doodle my finger in the dust here for a little while while I figure out what I'm going to say. I don't know. But he does that, and then he stands up and he looks at these religious leaders and kind of in a pointed way says, okay, so under normal circumstances, this woman should be stoned. So uh, which one of you has no sin? Uh, Whichever one of you has no sin, you get to cast the first stone. And uh, the Bible says that one by one, they each turn and walk away, and the lady's left standing there in front of him. And once again, he reaches down into the dust, and he writes, and I'm, I'm wondering, what am I going to do now? <laughs> you know? And he stands up, and he looks the lady in the eye, and he says, there's no one condemning you anymore. I'm not going to do it. Go. Be made whole. Don't do that anymore. In this discussion we're about to have today on a very sensitive matter, I would say in our congregation, the only person who gets to point fingers is someone who hasn't sinned. Is anybody here today who's never sinned? I would suspect not. So if you've had some issue in your life in the past where it didn't go the way in which it should have, then you may have some empathy and some compassion for what we're going to look at today, okay? So let's keep that sort of understanding as we read today what happened when Jesus had again some people come to him in Testament. It says this in in Matthew chapter 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee, went to the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowd followed him there and he healed them there. Some Pharisees, okay, these are the same type of people. We don't know if this is the same group, but again, religious leaders came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus starts by quoting scripture. He's going to go back and quote what we know as Genesis chapter 2. Haven't you read at the beginning the creator made, made them male and female? He's talking about when Jesus, probably when God first had Adam and Eve in the garden. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so so far, he hasn't told them anything new. The test that they've given him, he he hasn't deviated from any sort of pattern of scripture that they know of. So they go... Why then did Moses command it that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And now Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Notice again, it's men, or notice that it's men divorcing wives, not wives divorcing husbands, but that's another matter again. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But this is not the way it was from the beginning. This isn't the way God designed it. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. So we don't know exactly what happens to the Pharisees at this point, but the disciples step in now, and, and uh, 
they say, well, this is a really rough teaching, Jesus. And if this is really hard stuff. And so if this is the situation between a husband and wife, I reckon we just better not get married. It's, it's better not to marry. And Jesus goes, well, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those to whom it's been given. There are eunuchs who were born that way. Eunuchs are, in that culture, men who have been castrated, who have no sexual behavior whatsoever, okay? There were eunuchs who were born that way. There were eunuchs who have been made that way by others. And there was a practice in the ancient world in which young boys at about 12 were castrated for a variety of different reasons, and um, their sexuality was stolen from them by the culture, okay? We, again, we don't have time to get into it today, but he's saying there are some who had no sexual activity because others made it so they couldn't. And then there are those who choose to live like eunuchs. There are those who are celibate, and they choose that for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And the one who can accept this should accept this. <laughs> Well, isn't that a lovely way to start a sermon on a Sunday morning? You know, we've been doing this Matthew series since January. It ends on Labor Day, and I've been waiting all along, all the way since January, for to preach this message. No, it's, um, it's one that's been coming and coming and coming. I've been trying to figure out. How do we take what Jesus has said, what Scripture says, interpret that biblically, and put it in our culture and figure out what to do with it? I'm aware of this, that within our congregation, we've fit the profile of other congregations. There are plenty of people in our church who've experienced divorce. And you go, how does this play out for me? And, and how are you going to address this way? Because I've never experienced divorce. Leslie and I celebrated our 36th anniversary last Tuesday. And... Uh, it's been a great ride for us. Now, I need to say that um, that doesn't mean it's all be, always been easy. For us as a couple, we got married. We were in our t- early 20s when we got married, 1981. And uh, there are lots of days of great joy and great adventure. We've done a lot of stuff together, and God graciously allowed us to see the world over and over again through ministry experiences. But who are we kidding? In a marriage that's 36 years long, there are some days and periods that privately, just between me and her, are more difficult. It's not like we take them public, but there are days when, man, it's just hard. Now, we've been in a situation where, from our perspective, we have never wavered in our commitment to love one another, even when it's hard. But I think that may be partly because the joyous days have outweighed the hard days. But what happens when it goes this way? When the hard days far outweigh the joyous days? How do you manage the commitment then? I don't know that I could speak to that fully because that's not my experience. Okay, so I want to be fair today and say, I understand what it's like to be in a marriage that has some difficulties from time to time, but across the board, we've been married for 36 years because it's, it's right, it feels, it's, it's just easy. But for some others to say, I've been married for 36 years, you didn't get past 36 days because it was so bad. It was so bad right off the bat. What do we do about that? 
I think maybe something to do with leave and cleave, okay, where Jesus says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his flesh. When I say leave and cleave, some of you raised in church and you remember King James language, for this reason, Genesis says, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. I think sometimes we don't fully understand that. Not, not always, but I wonder at times if people realize that when they're going into a marriage, they really are leaving mom and dad and they are stepping into a new relationship. And that if you bring too much baggage from past stuff and family into the new relationship, sometimes the relationship doesn't survive. I remember um, we got married in North Carolina. We were students in Oklahoma. And we, had, we went on, on our honeymoon. And then we packed up all our worldly possessions, which fit in the back of one, the tiniest U-Haul truck you could buy you could rent, and we trucked all that across to Oklahoma. And we get out there, and I remember a phone call from my father-in-law saying, Wayne, I'm really glad that you guys moved away. What do you mean? Well, it was terrible to see you go, but I think it's helpful that you're more than one gas tank away from the house for the next few months. Now, it turned out to be the rest of our lives, but I think the fact that we went there helped us that we had to do this leaving and cleaving and kind of hanging together. But even then, those sometimes who follow that story, still divorce steps into it, doesn't it? Because that's not the full answer. Divorce in the country right now is, um, it's not as rampant as you think it is. As a matter of fact, divorce rates are falling. We are at present, in 2016, the divorce rate was lower than it's ever been since 1980, which is good news. Here's what we know about marriage and divorce. 90% of us get married at least once by the time we're 50. A first marriage is going to survive more likely than a second or a third. It's not true that 50% of marriages end in divorce. It's actually 40%, and as I said, the divorce rate is falling. There are some reasons why marriages can be strong, or at least why marriage will stay together. Let me give you two among many. One is children. It's proven, the statistics show that if you have children, the marriage may, is more likely to survive. Now, that doesn't mean the marriage is more healthy. It doesn't mean that everybody's having fun. It may mean that, well, we're miserable, let's bring in some company and let have misery have company. <laughs> but sometimes having children, again, doesn't make the marriage more fun, but the children sometimes will cause the marriage to stay together. Another reason among many is the people, the, the spouse's understanding of faith. Let me tell you about how faith plays an impact, an, uh, has an impact upon marriage. If you have an active faith life, namely that you're involved in some reading of scripture, that you are praying, that you are involved in church, in worship and service, the divorce rate amongst couples like that drops by 35% down to around about 25%. 25% of couples involved in active faith life will get divorced, but that is significantly better than 40% of the rest of the population, okay? It's a fallacy that evangelicals and uh, the general population have the same divorce rate. That's a common rumor. That is not true. It's 40 versus 25%. Why is it that evangelicals particularly have a better rate or a better understanding of marriage than those who are not f active in their faith? Sociologists have, in the last decade or so, have been examining this. And the primary reason is this. Listen to this is that when a couple run into trouble who are in an active faith setting, they will turn to God first and turn to Jesus Christ first before they turn to each other. 
In other words, the emotional support that a person needs in crisis is more likely to be found in God than in each other. That's not to say that they won't look to each other for help, but their first priority, their first place is God, and that helps. And then finally, one, one of the things that's key in this is the word active. It has to be active faith. If it's in name only, namely that, say, you're, I'm a Christian, but you don't practice it, you're not involved in the life of a church, you're not in a grow-serve-together group, you don't, you don't read scripture, you don't pray, actually the divorce rate amongst those people rises by 20% goes above 40%. So that just, so frankly, how that plays out is in the Bible Belt, where there are a lot of so-called Christians, you know, the greatest rate of divorce is in the Bible Belt, not, where, not elsewhere in the country, where people don't claim to have faith. But if you, it's all based on how active are you in your faith. And so you go, well, anyway, it's way too much stuff. Here's what I want to know. What does this say, this business about Jesus and marriage and divorce and remarriage? What does Jesus say? Well, Again, under the umbrella that we're not going to cast any stones today, let me put it this way. Jesus leaves room for, some div- for divorce and the potential of remarriage. He does. Under some understandings. First of all, you notice he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. So in other words, he acknowledges that there are sometimes situations that come along in divorce, that come along in a marriage, that push divorce and it's straight up, to marital unfaithfulness. And the, the language Greek here is absolutely sexuality. I think we understand it not only just in terms of sexuality, but, you know, I have, I, as a pastor, a number of years ago, I've, I've seen this now, got a call at 2 o'clock in the morning from a woman, you need to come and rescue me, please. And Leslie and I went to her house, and we took her out of that house. She was being beaten up, and we took her from that house to the to the women's shelter at Dove. Now, there is no way that man was not going to change. There was no way that it was right for her to remain married to him. So there are situations where the unfaithfulness is so, it, it can't be fixed. I get that. And I think Jesus leaves some room for that. He also, he also says that, well, if that occurs, there may be some situations where a person can't remain celibate. All right? He's got all this chatter about eunuchs and everything, people who, who are living outside, who have a sexuality that is not being met, if you will, in the context of a marriage. If they're single, he says, not everyone can accept this word, but only the, to, the, to those to whom it has been given. The one who can accept this should accept it. So apparently, Jesus is saying, okay, uh, yeah, in the mix of life, in the struggle of life, we've got to figure this out. And he leaves us some space where we go, how are we, how, let's, let's be honest and say, this is really bad. But what are we going to do about it? And I, I've got to tell you, my observation is that as Christians, we've not handled this very well from time to time. We've handled it, frankly, quite poorly in the past. Congregations have made judgments. Denominations have made pronouncements about this, that, and the other. And we've said to people, you get divorced, you're out of here. You've probably heard those stories, right? Or you know people say, man, the way in which the church responded to me once I got divorced, I wasn't allowed to have communion anymore. I wasn't allowed to serve. And they gave up on Jesus because of the way in which the church acted. I don't think we've got it all figured out yet. I remember a relative of mine in this regard. 
We moved from, Canada, from Australia to Canada in 1969. I was 11 years of age, and bit by bit, various members of the family would come from Australia to visit with us. I remember a relative coming over. This would be early 70s. I'm a young teenager, and so you're sitting in the living room with the adults, and you don't really get to talk a whole lot. You're supposed to be quiet, right? I remember him coming, and he, he, he came across, he visited some Christian colleges. I don't know why, but he was visiting Christian colleges in the U.S., then he came to Vancouver to visit with us. And what I remember about his conversation was, oh, you're, you're never going to believe this. But with, with disdain in his voice, he said, some of the professors have been divorced and remarried. And like this appalling that some of the professors have had life struggles. And I remember as a young, I mean, I might have been 13 years of age. I don't know, I can't remember how old I was, but I remember sitting there thinking, yeah, but don't all of us have struggles? And just because you have a struggle, that, doesn't, that means you can't serve? I remember even then thinking, this doesn't make sense. Because this is what I understand from countless stories and, that I know in the life of this church. When this mess happens, it's ugly. People say, well, I had a good divorce. I've yet to hear of that one. I've yet, you know, I've yet to see that. It's hard. It's really hard. So instead of us having disdain for struggle in people's lives, wouldn't we be wiser to say, how can we help people's lives? How can, particularly for those who are married or those who are thinking of getting married, how can, what can we do to promote better marriages? I have some ideas for it in this regard that I'd like you to consider and chat about them over lunch today, okay? This is, the, this is my response to all of this as a way to provide you with some fodder for discussion yet today. First of all, I'll go back to how we started the message today. You only get to cast stones on this if you don't have sin. Only those who say, I've never sinned, get to say, well, I've got it all figured out. I don't know that we've all got this figured out. We have to have a lot of grace for this, right? And we have to acknowledge Jesus says, not everyone can accept this word. This is a really, really hard teaching. It's like, <laughs> all this series long, we started Matthew 1 in January, and all the way along, and we go, man, we're coming to Matthew 19. How am I going to handle it? How, this is a hard, hard teaching. We have to be careful how we manage that. And in the midst of all that hardness and that complexity, hear this, the church cannot be the bedroom police. We are, we are ordained and instructed by God to teach on human sexuality and on human sexual, sexual practices in ways that honor God. Absolutely, we can teach on that, but it is not up to us as the church to be in people's bedrooms and proclaiming this, that, and the other. That's not our role. Our role is to say, Here's my job as the pastor of this church is to say, what can I do to help you become a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Because if I can help you become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, the sexual practices will line up with God's word thereafter. Let's start there rather than proclaiming this, that, and the other about sexuality. We can make comments about what the scriptures say about sexuality. And we're working very hard as you know, there's stuff coming in the coming months in that regard. But 
my primary role is to say, how can I help you become a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? And one of the ways in which we're doing that specifically when it comes to people about to get married or those who are, are in marriages, we have a program around here called Marriage Mentoring. Here's, our, here's what happens. We've trained some couples who have healthy marriages in ways that they can help those who might need some help. So we, it comes in, in two forms. First of all, you may have been married for 28 years and you say, man, our marriage is really good, but we'd like to do a dipstick check. You know, you put the, you go, you put the dipstick in and you want to see, is there oil still down there? And we've tr- and said, we'll help you in the midst of a really great marriage, do that check through marriage mentoring and just help you make it even better. Or maybe, maybe you have been married for 28 years and you say, man, I do the dipstick check, there's no oil. We're running on fumes, it's bad news. We'd like to help in those cases. So these couples, they come alongside one, after, one couple after the other, sometimes in really great situations, sometimes in very difficult situations, sometimes three weeks into the marriage, we can help out. So if, that's in, if you say, man, our marriage is great, but we'd like to do a checkup, we'll help you. If you say my marriage is in trouble, we'd like to help you regardless either way, okay? Because here's what, here's, here's what I'm aware of. This congregation, this, this church needs to do all we can. We've got to strive to extend care in the midst of, for what some people is, a very long struggle. And while Leslie and I may have this with lots of joy and a few days of struggle, for some it might be like this, for some it might be this, and others it might be this. And in the midst of it, the struggle's really long and hard, we have to be a congregation that says, this is the nitty-gritty of life. This is Jesus riding in the dust going, well, I don't know how I'm going to manage this one. This is us saying we will care in the midst of a really long struggle. And then for those who face this situation and say, I'm not a eunuch and I want to get remarried, some advice, just some counsel from looking in on lots of situations like this. Please go slowly and go wisely with lots of counsel. Don't rush it. Rather wait and be, hear the heart of God and be really settled, okay? Because here's what I do know. Divorce occurs in first marriages. It also occurs in second marriages and third marriages. The more marriages there are, the more possibility exists of divorce. And Jesus says, it was not this way from the beginning. He acknowledges this is not the best situation, but does happen. To which extent? Let me see if I can explain it this way. You got those coins in your hand? Maybe a quarter or a nickel or a dime? Do you notice that there's a difference between them, not only in size? What do you know about the coins? A, a, a penny, a nickel, a dime, and a quarter. What's different about them? Any idea? Take a look at a photo of them. Here they are. What do you see difference between the dime and the quarter, the nickel and the penny? Ridges around the edge. Why are there ridges around the edge of the dime and the quarter? Let me tell you a little bit of history here. 1696, more than 300 years ago. In Great Britain, Sir Isaac Newton was made the head of the Royal Mint. Now, Sir Isaac Newton, okay, what was he? 
Eighth, eighth grade, eighth grade science, gravity, apples falling, feathers, something or other, right? Yeah, okay. He's the guy who figured out gravity and, and, and devised as physicist. At the end of his career, the, uh, the British government said, well, since you've done so well, can we give you a title and a, a job that really is it's ceremonial, you don't have to do a lot, and just good luck. And so in 1696, completely out of rule, out of order of what he'd done all his life, he was made the head of the Royal Mint. He was going to be responsible for making British currency. At that time, British currency was in a horrendous state. Here's why. If you had a sixpence, if you had a shilling, whatever the case may be, they were made from silver. And here's what would happen to what people would do. They'd go, you know, if I had a little piece of this sixpence or this shilling, if I could get just a little bit off the edge, and I could get it off the edge of one sixpence and often the edge of another sixpence and another edge, eventually I could get myself a little bit of silver. And that, but I could still pass off my sixpence as a sixpence piece or a shilling piece. And so the British were involved in something called coin clipping. Coin clipping had been around for centuries. People cut the edges off these precious metal coins and they collect them. But in the meanwhile, they keep passing off the coins as being the real thing and the full weight of silver. Okay, but in the long run, in Great Britain in 1696, by the time he got to um, uh, Isaac Newton involved, the coins were so irregularly shaped and none of them were round anymore, nobody knew what was really being passed around. So counterfeiters, seeing, well, nobody really knows what a shilling looks like anymore, or a penny, or a half penny, or a sixpence. Let's just create counterfeit coins and pass them off. And consequently, the British pound and the British, British sterling, if you will, just plummeted on the world markets and everybody became broke. There were riots in London in 1696 over everybody said, I got all this money, but it's not real money. Isaac Newton comes up with a plan. You know what I'm going to do? As the head of the Royal Mint, I'm going to say that all the valuable coins need, now need to have ridges around the edge so that when it's clipped, you know it's not really any longer the full weight of a silver, a sixpence, or a shilling. So that comes across the, comes across the Atlantic, and when, we're, when the U.S. government is making coins, and they put the dime out and the quarter out, which were made in, from silver originally, they put ridges around the edge so the coins wouldn't get clipped. Well, why didn't they do that with the penny and the nickel? Well, because those were made from metals that were precious. And you could clip your penny all you wanted, but you'd have to have more clippings of the metal that it was made of and melt that down. You'd have to have more clippings that was found in one penny to actually have a penny's worth. But when it came to the dime and the silver, they put ridges around the edge. I mean, enough, enough. What's this got to do with marriages? Well, here's my concern. My concern is that we clip off the corners of our marriages. We just go, okay, I can, I, I, I'm not going to pay attention anymore. Or that, that conversation with that person of the opposite gender, it really doesn't matter. Or the list goes on and on, right? We're not going to, we're not going to have the conversations we had we used to have and so forth and I'm not going to pay attention like I used to. And it's nothing, nothing is done intentionally at times, sometimes it is, but and the result is that we end up with marriages that are not whole and healthy and round and successful. They're jagged and they're irregular shaped and they're broken. I'm dismayed at our culture's response to this. Just a few weeks ago, 
Vice President Pence was made fun of because of something, the way in which he says, you're not gonna clip up my marriage. Remember what happened? It was learned that he, ha he and his wife Karen have a rule in place. It's, it's commonly known as the Billy Graham rule because he put it in place in his marriage in the 1940s. Here's the rule as it goes. I'm not gonna go and have a conversation in a dinner setting or go in a car with somebody of the opposite gender without a third person there. And, I mean, the, the media took him to task on this, saying this is an old-fashioned marriage, this is a way in which he's mistreating his wife, and I wanna go, how can that be the case when you say, my spouse is so valuable to me, I'm not gonna hang out with a member of the opposite. Our, our culture friends are so wonky on some of this stuff. Crazy. How can that be bad to say, I'm not going to clip my marriage? I want to tell you, friends, here at First Christian Church, that, that rule, that understanding has been the practice since the day I arrived here. More than 20 years ago now. Think about a couple things just to show you how, how intensely intentional we are about this matter regarding our marriages for those who are on staff and for the people who come to see us. If I have a meeting across town and that perhaps another staff member has the same meeting but it's a female, we don't go in the same car. Or if we go in the same car, a third person has to go with us. Why? Because I'm not gonna clip in my marriage. If there's a meeting that needs to take place uh, over dinner or lunch, I, you won't see me in town having, anywhere in town, having a meal with someone where there's just two of us, it was a man and woman. It's the only time you're gonna see that is with my wife. <laughs> we had, uh, Les and I were having dinner at um, Roadhouse. That was a couple years ago now. And they didn't, whoever it was, didn't know that Les was my wife. They just knew her as the prison lady, the lady who visited prisons. <laughs> and they're watching us and they go, look, the pastor's having dinner with that prison lady. You'll see me having dinner with the prison lady on a regular basis. <laughs> if you look at every door in this building apart from closet doors that are full of stuff, if you look at any door in this building, you know what you'll see? There's always a window in the doors. Why is that? So that if any of us who are on staff or any of you who are having meetings with other people, you're never put in a situation where you're behind closed doors and no one can see what's going on. Why? I'm not gonna let your marriage or your singleness be clipped into the wrong shape. Every door in this building has a window in it for that reason. Specifically, that's why. Long plan to go. We moved into this building in 96 and that was the plan from the very beginning. And in the midst of all of that, I wanna say this. I, I'm fully aware, you could hear to you hear to me today. The intensity of this and my understanding of some of the pain that some of you have experienced with words and emotions that I don't have full words for and you certainly don't. But I want you to hear, in the midst of all that, no one is going to cast stones. And in fact, we're going to make certain that whatever it was, whether it was your sin or someone else's sin or circumstances or just life got ugly, whatever, I want you to know that we've got some grace to cover that, okay? 
We got grace to cover all the foul-ups of life. Not because of who we are as people, but because of who Jesus Christ is in us. So you may, you may be in a situation where, Wayne, I just need a little pop-up grace. You know, just a little, little umbrella of grace over me. Nobody needs to know. It can be a black, like black umbrella against a black curtain. You know what I mean? I don't need to, nobody needs to know. But can I just know that there's some grace out there for me? I've got to tell you this, friends. In this congregation, we've got grace for that. For some of you, it's not quite so quiet. And it's not quite so unseen. As a matter of fact, when it comes to your life, you have to say it's a little more colorful. And the colors are, are colors that everyone has seen. Moreau Forsyth colors, by the way, just for those who are wondering. You're going, no, my, my situation, my setting, my ex-spouse, and everybody knows about it, and it's, it's really easy to be seen. But I gotta tell you, friends, there's grace for that. There's lots of grace for that around here. Because I'm not going to cast stones. Mm-mm, not me. And then finally, there are some who say, man, I don't need just a little pop-up grace. And I don't need a grace that everyone can see. And say, man, mine is really tough. It needs two straps. It's, it's a big thing. That when It's got to be a big golf umbrella so that when the storms come along, it's held way high and it's double reinforced and it's got all the, I mean, the ribbing is really tied down tight. Maybe that's your life. Maybe it got really, really ugly. And not only was it ugly for everyone to see, but it was just, it was a storm like you've never experienced and nobody would ever expect it. I want you to hear, guys. There's grace in the life of this congregation for those stories as well. Not because of what we've done, but because of the grace in Jesus Christ. And I want you to experience that. If we can help you, let us know. Let's walk it out together through him. Would you stand and let's pray together right now. God, for my friends here today, in both rooms, Lord, none of us are without sin. Some, Lord, are, their marriages fell apart because of life. Others, their marriages fell apart because there was sin. That's not up to me to, to describe it, Lord. It's up to me, Lord, to extend grace on your behalf and to ask for better days. Lord, there are some here today whose their, their, their marriages are whole and healthy. Nothing's been clipped off. For that, we thank you. There are some, God, who um, the marriage is really tricky, awkward, on the verge of disaster. And there are some, God, here today who are single either because they chose it or somebody else chose it. And it was really ugly. I pray for grace for all of that, God. I pray that we'd be uh, a congregation that's known as a place where people can come and be healed and be made whole. That married people will strengthen other married people. That single people will strengthen the marriages within our, store, within our congregation's story. We long, God, for wholeness and health and completeness in you. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.